2: Hello, welcome to Trendy from Tortoise. I'm John Curtis
1: and I'm Rachel Wolfe. This week we're talking about housing. Barely a week goes by without another announcement or plan which politicians say will help fix Britain's housing crisis. In the latest of these, the government has pledged to build hundreds of thousands of new homes in cities and on brownfield sites, not the famous Greenbelt. But the truth is, that over the years, nothing seems to match the scale of the challenge we face when it comes to housing.
2: So what we're going to do in this podcast is to look at why we are so short of housing. Having done that, we'll then discuss how the form of the tenures that people live in, whether they're renting their homes or owning their homes, how that has changed. And then finally, we'll look at public attitudes towards building more homes, and what options there might be for policymakers. I'm delighted to say that we're joined to guide us through all this by Dr Tim Leunig, an economist, and more importantly, someone who's worked as a civil servant for a number of secretaries of state with responsibility for housing.
0: Hello. Yes, I fear on that one, I am guilty as charged. I worked for three secretaries of state on housing. I rejoiced in the title of economic advisor on housing supply and I achieved absolutely nothing in any of those roles, I'm sorry to say.
1: Tim and I now work together, but I first came across him almost 20 years ago when I read one of his housing pamphlets back then for a think tank called Policy Exchange. So he has been railing against the current system for quite some time.
2: So let's start with a number that summarises the parent scale of our shortage of housing. Tim, you've come up with one, I think.
0: Yes, broadly speaking, we would need about 5 million more houses to properly solve the crisis. It's a big number, but it's not an unprecedented number. It would put us in line with European
2: peers. So what I think you mean by that, so correct me if I'm wrong, that this is the number of extra additional houses or flats that we would need if the supply of housing was to match the demand for housing as well as it did in the uh, roughly in, back in the 1980s
0: yes or in earlier periods as well
2: right so we big question we've got to ask is why we've ended up in that situation now um in the meantime of course we're building most recently about 200,000 houses. It sounds quite, lo- lo- quite, quite a lot, Tim. Is to building 200,000 houses a year, or even the 300,000 that the government says it wants to build, is, is that going to be enough to solve this crisis anytime soon? No,
0: absolutely not. We're going backwards. Uh, we need to build probably half a million a year, particularly with the rates of immigration that we have at the moment. 200,000 won't cut it, 300,000 won't cut it. That's why prices keep rising.
2: So if we build 500,000 houses a year, by when might we say that perhaps we don't really have a shortage of housing?
0: Oh, it would take at least 10 years.
2: So even on that scale, we're talking about a very, very big problem.
0: Oh, yes, absolutely. It's one of the biggest problems we face as a nation today. It's a tricky problem. That's why politicians don't want to do anything about it.
2: So, Tim, why have we ended up in this apparent mess?
0: We've ended up in this apparent mess because we have a planning system that gives a great deal of power to local authorities to say no, and that in turn gives a great deal of power to some local people who don't want more housing.
1: So Tim, that is why we don't build as many houses as we need, the 5 million. But but can you just explain a bit since the mid-1980s, which is when incidentally my parents bought the house they now live in for much, much less than it would cost today. Why is there so much demand? Why do we need so many more houses than existed then?
0: So, we need many more houses for the following reasons. Firstly, the number of households is growing, and that can be put into two parts. The population is growing, not because we're having many more children, quite the reverse, but because we have higher rates of immigration but also because we have smaller households. This has been a trend forever and a day. Older people now live alone rather than moving in with their children. Younger people expect to live on their own, although that's increasingly a dream. Particularly, we've got a lot of older women living on their own. Female life expectancy increase particularly a little bit more than for men. They now want to live in the houses with all their wonderful memories of bringing up their children to live in a house where the grandchildren can visit. They don't want to live in a rabbit hutch. They don't want to live with their children and very often their children don't want their elderly parents to move in with them. So the result is more households relative to population. More households mean you need more houses.
1: So if you were going to go back to the 1980s then, you would have had fewer old people. Yes. those old people would have been more likely to live with their family or at least live somewhere very small. Yes. We would have had more children but much less immigration. Yes. And it is also the case, presumably, that we had fewer separated households Yes. as well. So we had fewer women who were living separately from the people who'd born their children or their ex-husbands or whatever. Yes. And this together, alongside over the last 40 years, we have consistently built... Fewer houses than rising demand. Has that been true throughout that period?
0: Yes. I mean from the end of the nineteen eighties onwards. We built quite a lot during the nineteen eighties, so we shouldn't characterize that as a problematic decade.
2: But but a question that somebody might ask at this point, Tim, is hang on, the planning regulations under which we're operating really date back to 1947. So if if we're talking about a problem that arose in the 1980s, why are we looking at the planning laws? rather than, for example, the fact that actually since the 1980s, the number of social rental housing that's been built has been much less uh, than it was beforehand. So why do you think that the finger of blame is at the planning system rather than changes in government policy, particularly with respect to social renting, or indeed the right to buy. A lot of people would, would refer to the right to buy under Margaret Thatcher as an, a reason why we are where we are.
0: Well, that's one of those very convenient myths used by NIMBYs to justify a lack of supply. Ultimately, we have far fewer houses per head of population than most Western European countries, and that's because we build far fewer houses than most Western European countries. We actually have the fourth highest number of social houses of any country that I can find. We're beaten only by the Netherlands, Austria, and Denmark. Uh, We have twice as many social houses per head of population as the average European or OECD country. We're definitely not short of social housing. What we are short of is people moving out of social housing, so therefore new people can't move in. That's why we have very long waiting lists. If you read Alan Johnson's wonderful autobiography, the first volume is the best one, of him growing up. He talks about growing up as a social housing tenant. He talks about living there as a postman. But in those days, postmen often moved out of social housing because market housing was roughly the same price as social housing. And that freed up more social housing for people who needed it. Because we haven't built enough market housing, especially in the southeast, market housing is now very expensive. No one moves out of social housing once they get one, so no one can move in. The problem of social housing is people don't leave it, not that we don't have enough of
2: it. But it's still that still leaves the question, right? If we go back to 1971, which admittedly was the peak, we managed to build at that stage over 400,000 houses in a year. Now it's 200,000 and we've not really actually reached the target of 300,000 since the late 1970s. So there's still a question here, as it were, why is it the planning regulations seem to have had more impact from the late 70s, early 80s onwards than... The, Perhaps they did have before. Or is that an incorrect analysis? Were, Were we, in fact, even in the 50s, 60s and 70s, not really building enough houses? So what's
0: happened in that period is that people's attitude to housing has changed. If you go to Woking, for example, there's a huge great 1980s estate on the outskirts. That estate was popular in the 1980s when it was built. People voted for councils that allowed housing. I grew up in Medway and I remember the big swathes being built out in Hempstead and it was seen as part of Margaret Thatcher's Opportunity Society. There were self-built, there were these so-called cookie-cutter detached houses that were small on the inside, etc. These were popular. You won elections by supporting housing. That's no longer the case. Older people in particular are now a bigger share of the electorate and they're more consistently voting against housing. And remember, older people are now much more likely to be owner-occupiers. They've got their housing, they're done.
1: So effectively so far, what you've said, Tim, is we have had a very major increase in the number of households since the 1980s, partly through migration, partly through the changing nature of households. We've refused to build the number of houses we would need to match that number of households, unlike in the rest of Europe. And that that has huge consequences for people who, for example, might want to move to where the jobs are. Now, before we talk a little bit more about the consequences for individuals, there's an argument that comes up quite regularly from some older people, which is, well, yes, houses are more expensive now, but when we were young, we faced punitive interest rates, very dramatic economic cycles, we saved more, we spent less money on avocados and lattes, and that therefore this crisis is not as real as young people say it is. Is there any fairness in that argument?
0: there is the smallest smidgen of fairness, which is that back in the 1970s or whenever, when interest rates were 17%, the first year or two of a mortgage absolutely crucified you. However, thanks to inflation, your mortgage largely evaporated by year five, when a third, 40, 50% of it in real terms had disappeared. Once you'd paid a mortgage for 10 years, you were absolutely in clover back in the day, whereas today, with lower inflation the mortgage is high for all of the 25, or often now 30 years, that it
2: lasts. Indeed, some of us can remember the 15% bank rate uh, on Black Wednesday in September 1992. And those of us who were sitting on a mortgage at that point were going, hang on, we're going to have to pay this. Fortunately, it wasn't very long, but certainly... Uh, yeah, but that, today's younger people, certainly the, the levels of interest rates they've had in the last decade have been remarkably low.
1: But on much higher amounts. Is, is exactly,
2: the pl- absolutely.
1: So just before we go into what's happened to people as a result of this, how much higher exactly are housing prices now? So, John, I think you had a couple of stats.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, this is just taking, you know, the actual number. It isn't making allowance for inflation. But, you know, back in 1980, which uh, we've all learned is Rachel's favourite decade, it cost on average less than £20,000 to buy a home. By the turn of the decade, 20 years later, it had risen by four times, caused partly inflation, to over £80,000. And now it's around £285,000. It's about 10 times uh, the average income. So the truth is that you can see how the lack of housing has helped to push the value and prices of houses up which means that for those in own occupation, they, and particularly those who bought in the 1980s, they've been sitting on an increasingly valuable asset. But Tim, this is obviously not, the, this is just one side of the coin, arguably the impact of those at the, the better off end of, the, of our society, but it also has its clear implications and its rough edge at the other end, the level of homelessness that we now have.
0: Yes, absolutely. When something becomes less affordable, fewer people can afford it, fewer people manage to buy it, and that's what we've seen with homes. It depends on your exact definition, but there are now a couple of hundred thousand or so people who we count as homeless. A few of them are literally on the streets, most of them are in bed and breakfast accommodation or in hostels. That includes more than a 100,000 children now, And I think every single one of your listeners will agree that for a child to be growing up in a bed and breakfast, sometimes being moved week on week, sometimes being moved quite considerable distances, making it hard to go to school and form stable friendships, is a disaster. It's not the happy childhood that Rachel talked about in the 1980s. And all of us, I think, in this country should hang our heads in shame that we have been willing to tolerate the growth of this sort of problem to this extent.
1: So... If we have a lot of people who can't move to where the jobs are, we have a lot of people who can't find a stable home or can't afford a stable home at all. And I think one other thing, Tim, you've talked about a lot is we also have a lot of people who can't move out from their parents if they do happen to be in a place one other anecdotal thing i have noticed and i don't have good evidence for is the younger people in our office and around seem much more likely to stick with stable relationships because it presumably halves the cost of sharing or renting a flat Um, so it has had big impacts on people's lives if we were to build those 5 million homes in a place like London or the South East, where there is demand for them. How much are we concreting over? What would solving the problem look like?
0: Well, it can look like anything you like, right? So it could look like Dubai, it could look like Houston, it could look like something in between. If you want a big, scary number, we're talking about building another London. But a more sensible approach would be to make the existing London a bit denser, like the centre at the moment, like places like Islington or Fulham or, or many other cities in Britain. If we did that, we could get another four and a half million houses within the current boundary of London without building on a single park or a single green field or anything like that.
1: Would that involve knocking down lots of Victorian and Edwardian houses to do it?
0: No, because most of the Victorian and Edwardian houses are the dense ones. The undense ones are the semi-detached houses that were built from the 1930s, but particularly in the 1950s and 60s. And if you look at the price people are willing to pay for those houses, they are no higher per square foot. Indeed, typically they're a little bit lower than good quality terrace housing from the previous era. So no, the Victorians are our inspiration, not what we need to overcome.
2: So Tim, is Michael Gove therefore right in his emphasis last weekend on converting office blocks, shops, etc, repopulating our city centres. Is that part of the answer to this problem?
0: Oh, it's definitely part of it, but it's a very small part. There aren't many spare offices that are unused in London these days. In places like Birmingham and Leeds and Manchester, that's what they're doing and they're doing it big time. You go to the centre of Birmingham or the centre of Leeds, they are massively repopulating their centres. Those are very sensible strategies.
2: Okay, so I think, Rachel, we should move on, yes, because we... uh, We've talked a lot about, we've referred to owner occupation and social renting, et cetera, but we've not really talked about the trends because if we're short of houses, what's also now, and we're shorter of houses now than we were back in the 1980s, the way, the kinds of houses that we have and the form of occupation has changed dramatically. Let's just, for example, just to take an example, owner occupation. So in 1971, we just about, for the first time, Reached a situation where a half of the households in England were owner occupied, either people owning them outright or very often on a mortgage. We got to a peak of just over 70% in the early 2000s, and that in a sense was an affirmation of the Thatcherite vision of a nation of homeowners. But we've gone in now, more recently, we've gone into reverse. The figure's back down to around two thirds or so. so. kind of one obvious question, Tim, is what's going on here? Why are we now fewer of us owning our own houses?
0: So a little bit of it is benign. People stay in education for longer, so they're a little bit older once they have an income that would allow them to buy a house. So obviously people in their early 20s will be less likely to be homeowners. In the late uh, 1980s, When I left school, or could have left school, some of my friends did leave school and got well-paid jobs, and they were owners by the time they were 20. So that's gone. But the big thing is that houses are more expensive. I mean, you can go onto the website and type in how much can I borrow, and if you're a teacher in London, you will discover the answer is not enough. Indeed, most teachers will know that there's no point even asking the bank for a mortgage because their chance of being able to afford somewhere is low. At very least they need two full-time incomes, and that often isn't possible. They also need a large deposit. The average house in London is now 600,000. You will get a one-bedroom flat on the outskirts for 30,000, but if you're talking about a family home, you're going to need 40-50,000 as a deposit. It's pretty hard to save that sort of money.
2: But then the slack is not being taken up by the state, or at least in the form in which the state traditionally provided housing, you know, so called council houses, uh, socially renting. So, again, in the 1970s, nearly three in 10 households were in socially rented housing. It uh, got over 30% by the beginning of the 1980s. It's now around a half that. It's down to about 16%. So, the state also seems to have withdrawn. And what we've had, perhaps quite remarkably, it's the resurrection of a tenure which once upon a time, to go back to the, before the First World War, was the dominant form of tenure, private renting, which in the 1970s still provided about one in five houses. But by the early 1990s, it was down to one in 10. It's now back up to around one in five again. So oh, it may well be that people can't afford to own occupation, but why is it or can they afford to live in private rental?
0: Well, partly private rental is much more flexible. All you have to do is have one month's deposit and in you go. And if you can't afford it after three months, the landlord can evict you for non-payment. Landlords are much more likely to evict you than your bank is. It's very, very hard these days for banks to foreclose on people, which makes them reluctant to take people on in the first place if they're not 100% sure. There are also lots of regulations on banks in terms of uh, minimum deposit requirements and the like. Whereas essentially landlords can take a risk
2: on anyone but presumably therefore there are now more people in our society who have sufficient assets to become landlords yes than was the case 20 or 30 years ago so that so the sense therefore so not only do we have a divide between the only occupiers and everybody else but we've got now more people who are multiple homeowners who are using that as a business yeah? so you know, we, yes know we sometimes see these programs on television.
1: And they're presumably in some senses the same people in that this is another example of the growing gap between older and younger people. Older people are more likely to own homes. They're more likely to have assets and therefore they're more likely to have the ability to borrow against those assets to buy more homes that they can then rent out to provide themselves an income.
0: Absolutely true. And there are two groups here, I think. There are people who own property as part of their pension. They've decided it's a better bet than shares. And there are people who are mom-and-pop landlords who are doing it as a job, particularly people who bought relatively early on when house prices were low. They see this as a winner. They've increased their sort of empire. They own 10 or 12 houses. They let them out and they make a good income.
2: We'll be back in a minute. But first, a short break.
0: Hello, Tortoise Listener. Are you on top of the news or is it on top of you? Don't worry, we've got the solution. Papercuts is the fast, funny, daily podcast where we look at the wonder and weirdness of the British press. I'm Miranda Sawyer and every weekday I'm joined by top comedians and smart journalists for a rollercoaster ride through the daily papers. Tune in and we'll bring you the biggest, the weirdest and the most entertaining stories of the day in one handy half-hour package. That's Papercuts. We read the papers so you don't have
1: to. Subscribe on your favourite app. So far, we've mostly talked about supply problems and then what the result has been in terms of where people live and what kind of places they live. But when you look at the policies that governments announce, that they're often not really about supply. So there have been lots of policies like, right, uh, is it help to buy? I get, confu- I get confused about all the different terms of these, which, which are often about selecting a certain group of people and, and helping them get on the housing ladder. There's another set which are about potentially making it easier to borrow or borrow more. I think there's been a question about 95% mortgages. And then there's a third set, which is actually about supply, which Labour have talked about a lot, which is returning to the government as builder. Given what's happened and given the challenges, what is your view about the effectiveness of those policies, which are much more common, in my experience, than just releasing the planning regulations?
0: So all of those ideas to stoke demand are terrible they will all make the problem worse. If demand exceeds supply, increasing demand is a very bad idea. Full stop. End of message. There is nothing more that needs to be said on that one.
2: But you can see why politicians might do it, because, you know, we've already referred to this, but basically those aged 25 to 34 are half as likely as those in their 60s, uh, to be owner-occupiers and we've you know we've actually seen a reversal of the age gradient in 10 so it used to be the case that people in their 30s and 40s were actually more likely to be owner-occupiers than people in their 60s and their 70s and that has now all been completely reversed so as it were we've had a generation of people again it's the generation of the 70s and 80s who got into an occupation um, and are now, you know, uh, 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 rather grey around the uh, around the edges, but they have their own occupied homes. You are the problem, Yeah, John. well, yeah, and then...
0: Uh, we are the problem, all of us. We are all <laughs> owner-occupiers, I think, in this
2: discussion. And then, and, and then the... Um, uh, but then the next generation coming along has found it much more difficult, and they... I mean, we've still got a situation where those in their late 20s and early 30s are actually more likely to be in private renting than they are in owner occupation. And they've just found it so much more difficult to get on the so-called housing ladder. But you can see therefore why politicians for whom building more houses is a much more difficult and long-term project, whereas being able to get a few more younger people enable them to be able to buy a house you can see why they pull that lever even though we in the longer term it's just not going to make any difference at all.
0: Of course I mean pretending to solve a problem is often easier than solving the problem
2: but if you're going to be in government for more
0: than a few weeks or months or a couple of years your failure to solve the problem will come back and bite you that's how democracy works.
1: And Tim, sorry, just before we move on to sort of the political dynamics, a little more in attitudes, I also mentioned what Angela Rayner, the uh, new shadow d luck which is the departments in charge of housing secretary, has talked about, which is returning to government as House builder returning to social housing. Now, you've made the point that actually we're already one of the biggest social housing countries in the world. But is that a plausible solution to the scenario? Is it easier to do that than what I think you've really been advocating, which is changing the planning system?
0: So, if all Angela is going to do is have the council build houses that would have been built by Taylor Wimpey, then it won't do anything. If she's saying that we, the council, will give ourselves planning permission more readily, which is plausible, I've had councils tell me they would absolutely do that, then I think she's on to something. The other way I think she's on to something is we're beginning to see London councils just buy up properties because it will be cheaper to buy a property, take out a mortgage bluntly from the government through the Public Works Loan Board, than to pay for bed and breakfast for families. Ealing has just announced that plan this week and that will be a very sensible thing just in terms of human misery but probably in terms of saving money as well so I think she's right that there is a role for the state here but we need to make sure it's the right role but
2: Tim what the Labour Party is more broadly talking about is indeed changing those planning laws you're talking about yes I'm very excited I'm the only person excited by a Keir Starmer-led government. So, but how radical do the reforms planning need to be? And is it possible that if we get a Labour government with a large majority, which as a result has quite a few MPs from the South East representing suburbia and rural areas, are they going to be able to be robust enough to be able to pursue the changes to planning laws that maybe you think are required?
0: I live in hope because it's the one thing that they haven't pulled back from at all. Keir has said a number of times we're on the side of the builders, not the blockers. So I, at least for the moment, am willing to take him at his word because he has said it so many times. And there's been no hint of pulling back. Whereas other things Labour have done, including the Green New Deal, we saw a lot of pulling back even before they killed the policy. We haven't seen anything on this. So I I travel hopefully, John, but then I'm one of life's optimists.
1: I think there are potentially two reasons for that. And, and it leads us into, you know, where attitudes are. The first is, of course, that Labour's electoral coalition, even under a large majority, is somewhat different. It is more likely to be younger. It is less likely to be made up of the home counties in bits of Oxfordshire or Cambridgeshire or wherever that want to be defended. And the second, which I think has been very noticeable in the last few years, is we now have a generation of Journalists, columnists, and indeed senior people in political parties who are in their thirties and early forties and are very angry that they cannot have the kind of liberal class and professional lifestyle that their parents would have enjoyed. I think that's been a real switch recently, and an and elite discourse has started to change quite dramatically. So I'm also a bit of an optimist. But maybe, John, it is worth just talking about where opinion does lie uh, before we finish.
2: A a perfect cue. Um, It so happened British Associates, which I had some responsibility for back in 2021, did ask a little bit uh, of people, one or two questions, about their attitudes towards building new homes in their local area. Now, across the country as a whole, we seem to be evenly divided. 34% said they would support building new homes in their area, but 31% said they were opposed. But then when you look underneath the bonnet, you see the difference that you've just been referring to, Rachel. So if we take 18 to 34 year olds, the group that we have said find it more more difficult to leave home, to buy a home, etc., cetera, et cetera, 42% of them would support a new home being built in the local area. Only 21% would be opposed. So they're two to one in favour. In contrast, amongst the over 55s, you know, they're slightly more inclined Uh, to be opposed. There's also a contrast between London and the South East. In London, 43% support housing being built in that area, only 25% in the South East outside of London. So you can see why the Prime Minister might think it's easier to build houses in the city. But then you look at the difference by which party people support. 48% of those people who regard themselves as Labour supporters support building new homes in their local area in contrast only 26 percent of conservative supporters do so so you can see why this seems to be at the moment at least rather easier for Labour to pursue the idea of planning reform than it is the Conservative Party because the coalition of older voters that support the Conservative Party particularly living outside our cities that is the core of the area of people who are more inclined to use our planning laws not to have more houses built.
0: So what really excites me about that number is the figure for London. Because the economics are clear, the most important place to build houses is in London. That's where the prices are highest. That's exactly what prices are telling us. I'd much rather see London become denser than to see Guildford and St Albans and Chatham and Oxford, etc. expand, just because that's what the price signals are telling us. So it does seem to me there's a plausible winning coalition there. It's also potentially a very good outcome for Labour. If we double the number of houses in Peckham, then the Peckham seat gets divided and there's a pretty good probability that Labour would then win two seats. Dulwich is not going to go Conservative anytime soon, I think.
1: So I think having started on a note of some pessimism, this is a genuine crisis and it's causing very very bad effects for a lot of people in the country we appear to be ending unusually for us i have to say tim on a note of real optimism which is that
2: and i provided you with the optimism for a change rachel i
1: know john i'm so pleased uh, which is that the electoral dynamics for an incoming labor government are really very substantially different than they've been for the conservative government and actually there is a signal that Some of the places which most want house building are actually the places that most needed. I think the other important thing that, Tim, you have emphasised throughout this show is this is fundamentally a question of supply. And it's a question of supply strangled by our planning regulation. And any other housing policy is at best fiddling at the edges or if not making it worse. And that is an unusually simple answer to a big policy problem.
2: So I think, Rachel, you're setting out for us the possibility of a vision that now it will be Labour that tries to turn us into a nation of homeowners.
1: So on that brilliant note, that's it from Trendy for this week. Thank you so much, Tim, for coming and explaining what's going on. I'm Rachel Wolfe. And I'm
2: John Curtis. We'll be back again next week.
1: Overdraft fees are just the worst. Get up to 200 in fee-free overdraft with the Chime checking account. Sign up today at Chime.com slash Goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank NA or Stripe Bank NA, members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.
0: Hello, I'm Giles Wittell, Tortoise's deputy editor. On the News Meeting podcast, we try to make sense of what should be leading the news with three guests who each pitched the story they think matters most. And once a month, we record a live episode in
2: our newsroom. The next one is on the 27th of March and I'm going to be joined by the brilliant author and podcaster Elizabeth Day. To come to the event and tell us what you think should
0: lead the news, go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. That is tortoisemedia.com forward slash book.